welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the trials and tribulations facing the youth today, as men and boys are being surpassed academically by women and girls, while girls are suffering disproportionately under the weight of the toxic forces of social media. Clips today are from Axios, Big Think, The Man Enough podcast, the PBS NewsHour, The Diary of a CEO, Keep Talking, and Your Undivided Attention, with additional members-only clips from Your Undivided Attention and Big Think. And just a note before we start, this is a conversation that is just emerging on the left, and so some of the ideas presented are, by definition, new and untested, and they should probably be met with skepticism and debate before being implemented or just really jumping on that bandwagon. So, not all ideas shared today have my personal endorsement and should not be seen as having it, but they are worth hearing, I think. Also, I would point out that this is a topic that is not being ignored by the far right. They are gearing up to make this their next culture war issue, and they have answers for our youth that is antithetical to most progressive values. So this is a discussion that we ignore at our own peril. Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri is looking to position himself as a leader in this war, so we'll start with a short clip from him speaking with Axios in 2021 to get a feel of their framing before moving on to some attempts to address this topic in more progressive terms. Senator, you gave a pretty hot speech at the National Conservatism Conference in Orlando you talked about the left's attack on men of America. Yeah. Why masculinity as your new big issue? Well, I think what the left is doing is attacking America. They're saying that America is systemically oppressive and men are systemically responsible. What's a man to you? Paint a picture. What's a man? Well, a man is a father, a man is a husband, a man is somebody who takes responsibility. As conservatives, we've got to call men back to responsibility. We've got to say that spending your time not working, and we have more and more men who are not working, spending your time on video games, spending your time watching porn online while doing nothing is not good for you, your family, or this country. So a viewer's watching this, and they're thinking, really? What the liberals are doing are going to push me to watch Pornhub more or play Donkey Kong more? Do you mean that literally? Well, what I mean literally is that I think the liberal attack, the left-wing attack on manhood says to men, you're part of the problem. It says that your, your masculinity is inherently problematic. It's inherently oppressive. What's your basis for linking that to what liberals or the left, as you would say, do? Is that based on data or based on a hunch? Well, it's policy over many years. I mean, if you look at the policy of deindustrialization, those are policy choices Mike pursued over many years. I've looked wait, at- wait, how does that connect to porn? Oh, well, you've got, you've got men, 16 million men, Mike, who are idle, who don't have anything to do. Now, partly that's their own responsibility, but also partly it's because jobs have dried up in many cities across America and rural areas, too. I think you put together lack of jobs, you put together fatherlessness, you put together the social messages that we teach our kids in school. I think we've got to confront that and its effects. The overall picture is that on almost every measure, at almost every age, and in almost every advanced economy in the world, the girls are leaving the boys way behind and the women leaving the men. What nobody expected was that girls and women wouldn't just catch up to boys and men in education, but would blow right past them and keep going. 
everyone was very focused, quite rightly, on getting to gender equality, getting to gender parity. It's not that long ago where there was a huge gender gap the other way, and there was huge focus, correctly, in the 70s and 80s to really promote women and girls in education. But the line just kept going, and nobody predicted that. Nobody was saying, what if gender inequality reemerges in just as big a way as now, in some cases bigger, but the other way around? And to some extent, everyone's still trying to get their head around this new world where, at least in education, when you talk about gender inequality, you're pretty much always talking about the ways in which girls and women are ahead of boys and men. And that's happened in a very, very short period of human history. So if you look at the US, for example, in the average school district in the US, girls are almost a grade level ahead of boys in English and have caught up in math. If we look at those with the highest GPA scores, the top 10%, two-thirds of those are girls. If we look at those at the bottom, two-thirds of those are boys. When it comes to going to college, there's a 10 percentage gap in college enrollment, a similar size gap in completing college, conditional on enrolling. And the result of those trends is that the gender gap in getting a college degree is now wider than it was in 1972, but the other way around. So in 1972, when Title IX was passed to promote more gender equality in education, there was a 13 percentage point gap in favor of men getting college degrees. Now there's a 15 percentage point gap in favor of women getting college degrees. So the gender inequality we see in college today is wider than it was 50 years ago. It's just the other way around. There's quite a fierce debate about the differences between male and female brains. And in adulthood, I think there's not much evidence that the brains are that different in ways that we should worry about or that are particularly consequential. But where there's no real debate is in the timing of brain development. It is quite clear that girls' brains develop more quickly than boys' brains do, and that the biggest difference seems to occur in adolescence. So what happens is in adolescence, we develop what neuroscientists call the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex of our brain is sometimes known as the CEO of the brain. It's the bit of your brain that says you should do your chemistry homework rather than going out to party. It's the bit of your brain that says it is worth maintaining a high GPA because it will help you get to college, which might help you in the future. And that bit of the brain develops considerably earlier in girls than in boys, between one and two years early, partly because girls go into puberty a bit earlier than boys, and that seems to trigger some of this development. What that means is that if you have an education system that rewards the ability to turn in homework, stay on task, worry about your GPA, prepare for college and so on, then just structurally... That's going to put an advantage the group whose brains have developed earlier in those particular areas. That turns out on average to be girls. I think it's a great irony of women's progress that by taking the breaks off women's educational opportunities and aspirations, we've revealed the fact that the education system is slightly structured against boys and men because of these differences in the timing of brain development. But it took the, the women's movement to show that. Because the natural advantages of women in education were impossible to see when women's aspirations were being capped by a sexist society. Now that those caps have been largely removed, we can see that it's boys and men who are at a disadvantage in the education system. At the risk of sounding boring, let's collect the data first so we know what we're dealing with here. I do think that we should be strongly encouraging boys to start school a year later than girls. I think that should become the default in many school districts. 
because of the developmental gap that there is between boys and girls. Because boys' brains mature more slowly, then them starting school a year later would mean that they were developmentally closer to being peers with the girls in the classroom. We need a lot more male teachers. It's striking that the teaching profession has become steadily more female over time. Only 24% of K-12 teachers now are male. That's down from 33% in the 80s. And fewer men are applying to teacher training year on year. And so we've seen this steady shift towards a close to an all-female environment. That has all kinds of consequences for the ethos of the school, for the way we deal with different kinds of behavior among boys and girls, for example. And so we need a very serious and intentional effort to get more men into teaching. The third thing I would do in this world where I have significant power to dictate policies would be significantly more investment in vocational education and training. That is an area where we do seem to see better results for boys and men on average, and one that's woefully underinvested in in the US. The US has really bet most of its dollars on a very academic, a very narrow route towards success and less emphasis on vocational training. And that has actually put boys and men at a disadvantage. So apprenticeships, technical high schools are actually a really good way to help more boys and men. I think one of the challenges with, with this debate is that if you're talking to women and men who are, say, at the top of the economic ladder, four-year college degrees, decent incomes, they look around and they don't see some of these issues. But that's not the same for working class men. That's not the same for men lower down the economic ladder. So there's a danger that we're so busy, to borrow Sheryl Sandberg's phrase, so busy leaning in that we don't look down. The reality for men further down the ladder is very different. When you talk about gender inequality in schools and in colleges, right? So we're starting from a position of like 50 years ago, not just that women were discouraged from going to college, like women weren't even allowed, right, to go to certain mm. colleges. You know, you have an interview with Belmar where he literally talks about going to college where there were no women. And this is what bugged me in the, in the language that you used in that moment in another interview. You know, you said now the, you, you're, you're still using gender inequality to define the phenomenon of, of, of there being more women in colleges than men. And I don't think that that's the, to me, using gender inequality in that context is like if there were more black women who are getting degrees than white women. Would that be racial inequality? No. Is what I'm saying making sense? Like, we wouldn't call that racial inequality <laughs> yeah. if people of color were, you know, doing better in school than white people. We would still talk about it, like there's something going on. But I think using the term gender inequality in that context, when it's not that there's laws trying to get men out of schools or an entire society that's, you know, devoted to trying to, you know, uh, push them out. Mm. And so can we, is there another language that we should be using that acknowledges that this isn't like a structural, you know, discrimination that's happening? Yeah, well, you're getting into the why of the gap. So the data are pretty clear. The, the, so just to put the data point on the table, in 1972, when Title IX was passed, men were about 13 percentage points more likely to get a college degree than women. Now women are about 15 percentage points more likely than men to get a college mm -hmm. degree, right? So I'll use the language for now in the way that you've just criticized and then defend it. So there's a bigger gender inequality in higher education in the US today than there was in 1972. It's just the other way around. 
Now, I think that I'm just using gender inequality in a neutral sense there to describe any gap that can be that can be seen between the mm-hmm. two genders. So you could get it in life expectancy, for example. But here's another example, the gender pay gap. Do we still want to measure the gender pay gap? And I think the gender pay gap is is neutral. I don't think that the fact of the gender pay gap is in dispute. In fact, it's not in dispute. It's a fact. The question is, like, why is it happening? And the real argument is, is it because of gender discrimination and patriarchy or is it because of something else, occupational choice, child rearing, whatever? But I don't think the fact of describing a gender inequality in wages is anything other than a fact. And I would say the same about a gender inequality in education. And just because it goes the other way doesn't make it less true, right? Well, but would you use racial, would you call it racial inequality? If it, if, if we were talking about race, would you choose that terminology? Cause I think there is a difference between gender gap and gender inequality, right? Like that gender inequality. And again, this is t- to me, uh, but that, that, connotes sexism hmm. right that connotes a societal discrimination and and it, and and yeah women being barred from being going to college in 1972 is dif- is is different from men being you know having difficulties though they're admitted in in colleges and again i'm saying it's good that we're acknowledging that issue but to use the same term to mm-hmm. describe women not being allowed to go to college and men not doing as well in college to me is is a false equivalency and it kind of obfuscates the way that for women, this was, you know, a, you know, this was the state doing this. This was the government doing this and preventing them from being. Can I just add something? And and Chris, I know you, you know what, you have some thoughts. I know for sure in the work that you do in all of us, we want people to hear us, right? We don't want to just say things. The goal is to go into a room and have them hear our thoughts and embrace them, whether they agree or not, but at least consider them. And if we start with language that sometimes puts up a wall for someone, then I want to change that language because I want them to hear my message right. and not get caught up in the language. I know I can use this word inequality to say that um, there was inequality in baseball with whites and blacks because blacks were left out of sports. P- specifically, they were oppressed. You cannot mm-hmm. come in here. You can't do it. There was an inequality, and we use that term. You could also use the term inequality in, in basketball now, black and white. There's not a lot of white people in it. But if you use the term, if I use the term as inequality in basketball, in race, or a white person said that, black people are going to be like, what do you mean yeah. there's inequality? Well, black people get wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean inequality? Because white people are not, are not being told they can't come in it because of their race. They're not being oppressed. Yeah. The reason is, as you had said, there's a reason for it. But that word inequality mm-hmm. elicits so much it's in our blood. It's in our marrow. Like so much but, has been unequal for yeah, so long. Right. So much oppression yeah. has taken place towards women, right. towards bodies of culture that as soon as the oppressed, you know, or the oppressor says there's inequality yeah. now, it's like, well, watch it. What? Watch yeah. it. I think it's important to use, if I want to make the point to someone to hear it, it is important to the terms that we use so that it can then be heard. And I would be like, oh, don't use the word inequality when we're talking about the basketball makeup. I would be like, there's a gap between black and white people, or there, there is a disparity in races in it. Um, it doesn't then elicit emotion that I'm going to now mm-hmm. get defensive over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hear that's what, mm. Liz, when you say that, there's so much to it. So I think there was a learning I just had in there that we can say the same thing and just yeah. reframe our, our, our words. And I think that we come up with better solutions when we're able to really use the right language to label the problem. And and this is the fear mm. that I have where people are hearing, you know, gender inequality now. And it's like, well, now men are the ones who are oppressed and and, and right sort of equi- it, 
doing equivocation with the way that women were, you know, prevented from being in college is right. different from what's going on. There, there, there are two problems that are worthy of being addressed e- equally, but the, the source of the problem is different. This is an incredibly good example of like the value of this kind of exchange because mm-hmm. this is literally a point that has never been made to me before. And I'm sitting here thinking about it and thinking that the I think I'm using the word inequality in a neutral way, right? Like like gap. But what is heard is that inequality is related in an important way to an injustice. Correct. Right. And so by using the language of inequality, you imply, you infer right. an injustice. Right. And that obviously gets people's backs up if you're suddenly talking about the gender inequality mm-hmm. for boys and men in education, because that's not the result of an injustice. Mm-hmm. Whereas previous gen- inequality, the other way was, right? Um, and so I'm just kind of, I'm sitting, I, I need to sit with this for a little bit longer, but it's incredibly useful for me just to have heard that, Liz, and and to know that that word inequality is being received differently to the way that I mean it and that might help me to improve my communication so I'm really grateful for that Our ad system respects your privacy but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely we would love to have you as a member of the show Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com/support. The CDC has been conducting this survey every couple years for three decades, and this new report is the first to measure the well-being of the nation's youth since the pandemic started. In 2021, the CDC saw an increase of mental health challenges across the board, but as one official said, it's girls in the U.S. that are engulfed in a growing wave of sadness, violence, and trauma. Nearly three in five teen girls reported feeling persistent sadness and hopelessness double the rate of boys. 25% of girls reported having made a suicide plan, and 14% reported having been forced to have sex, a 4% rise since the last survey. What's more, 22% of teenagers that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or questioning have attempted suicide in the past year. For a look at how we got here and what can be done, I'm joined by Sharon Hoover, co-director of the National Center for School Mental Health and professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Sharon Hoover, thanks for joining the news. I want to jump right in because there's so many topics. The decline of youth mental health goes back at least a decade, but the numbers of girls reporting how much they're suffering really stands out in this report. Why do things seem to be getting worse for teen girls? That's right. I mean, I have to say we are not surprised to see increases in mental health challenges. We have seen these trends happening for the past several years, as you said. But it was quite surprising in some respects to see the stark gender difference that we saw. And and as you said, this is the first national look that we've had since the pandemic. And so it gives us a bit of insight into maybe how boys and girls and different folks have experienced the pandemic differently. Why are we looking at this gender gap? Why are girls suffering so much? 
There's a lot of speculation right now, now that we've seen this stark difference between girls and boys. One of the hypotheses is that girls were more socially isolated and may rely more on their peers for self-confidence, for self-esteem, for just their general well-being. And they also been, been have more likely to actually spend time on social media and not just spend time on it, but time that is excessive and may reach the threshold of making them at greater risk for anxiety and depression. The CDC, um, Sharon, says schools are on the front line of this crisis, and that's your area of expertise. What is the role of schools in addressing hopelessness, and are they equipped for that task? Yeah, so I was pleased to see the CDC come out and say that schools need to be a really critical part of how we address this. You know, many of us have said that we can't simply treat our way out of this youth mental health crisis. There's not enough providers and it really isn't the right approach. You know, I often talk about how if we saw 60% of our young people being injured in car accidents, the solution would not be to simply hire more physicians in the emergency department. Rather, we would take a public health approach. We would take a look at how can we better equip cars? How can we look at the driving age? And similarly, we really need to be taking a public health approach to what's happening with our young people. And one of the most essential places to do that is in schools. The CDC has long said that we need to be looking at efforts to promote school connectedness and belongingness. And when we actually make a concerted effort and investment in those types of positive youth development approaches, we actually see improvements in school connectedness and impact on youth mental health. So I absolutely think it's the right way to go in terms of the fix here, or at least one part of the resolution to this. I want to come back to what was most startling to me about this report, which is that 14 percent of teenage girls report being forced to have sex, um, that they are experiencing rape and violence at much higher rates. Um, those things would obviously impact mental health. But shouldn't the headline be girls are being targeted and raped at alarming rates? And what is being done about the perpetrators of such crimes? It was odd to me to see that grouped in with mental health challenges. Right. Well, we know the two are related, of course, as you said. If you're experiencing sexual assault, you're at much greater risk for mental health challenges. But absolutely, there needs to be a headline just calling out what's happening to our young girls. We've seen a dramatic increase in their self-reported incidents of sexual assault. And it is startling. The numbers are, are really concerning. And there are measures that can be put in place, again, many of those at the school level, to help our young people navigate navigate relationships and to really prevent some of the sexual assault that we're seeing. The numbers are striking. Finally, Sharon, this CDC report enforces previous research that has shown how lesbian, gay and questioning youth are reporting substantially worse well-being, including also being more likely to experience violence. Given how there are school boards that are literally fighting over gender identity curriculum, are they even less likely to get their mental health needs met today? It's one of our greatest worries that some of the controversy right now and some of the legislation and just discussion even at the school board level about making our environments and our schools less inclusive for LGBTQ plus youth could really negatively impact this group of students who are already vulnerable. We know that LGBTQ youth are much more at risk of suicidality, of depression and anxiety, 
And we also know that there are solutions that can be put in place to help them with not only getting mental health supports, but also at a more public health level to really make schools a more inclusive, accepting place where they can feel that they belong. And we're very concerned about some of the legislation that we're seeing, some of the actions by school boards to make their schools less inclusive, which we feel and and the data would support puts them at greater risk of mental health concerns. So I think what you have is a generation of young men that have no motivation, no guardrails. They get their dope hit of addiction on Robin Hood. They don't have the mojo to get out there and meet women as much because they're watching so much porn. They get they get this illusion that they have some sort of worth or affirmation when they say angry things on social media that they get rewarded for. They become they start blaming other people. Specifically, they start blaming women and they become much more prone to misogynistic content. They start believing in conspiracy theory. They're less likely to believe in climate change. And some they become just really shitty citizens. And we're producing just a massive amount of these individuals. And the scary part is we'll just ignore the weirdo and put them in the corner. The problem is the government doesn't ignore them because we're very misogynistic when it comes to our elected leaders. In the U.S., we've been producing more female college graduates than male college graduates for the last 40 years. But still, only 28% of our elected representatives are female. People, societies, men and women, conflate leadership quality with height and depth of voice. So we will always, at least in the U.S., for a long time, elect more men. And who do these men appeal to? How do they get elected? They appeal to this cohort of conspiracy-driven, misogynistic, anti-government men, young men. These young men will always have overrepresentation in government, which leads to elected leaders saying that they believe the elections are rigged, <laughs> that stoke nationalist fears, that blame immigrants. I mean, really, really hateful stuff. And so not only are these individuals uh, dangerous and unproductive, but what's even more unproductive is they will have a disproportionate voice in our politics because the easiest way to get elected is to tap into the tribal instincts or motives of this of this cohort. You said misogynistic content there. And um, one of the things that came to mind when you said that was mm-hmm. Andy Tate. Yeah. Are you familiar with yeah. this person? Yeah. Is Andrew Tate's message a symptom of um, what you've described? 100%. Uh, you know, we live, look, it's easy to credit your grit and your character for your successes and blame the markets for your failures. And so when you have a young man who is failing, he's looking for culprits. And then you have someone come along and say, it's not your fault. And, and they start saying that the reason you can't find a date, it's women's fault. It's their fault. It's not yours. It's not that you haven't developed the skills or demonstrated the discipline to develop the attributes that others find attractive, it's their fault. And I think it's very um, dangerous. And most of it's a grift. The individual you represented claims it's not your fault, and that, but buy my 49.95, you know, learn how to be successful program. It really is a grift. Um, and people, you know, Trump is sort of a, a version of that, right? I mean, if you think about what's happening in America, the Democratic Party is basically becoming the party of educated women, and the Republican Party is becoming the party of uneducated men. So, yeah, I think uh, I think that those types of individuals are perfect examples of trapping of kind of falling into this really ugly 
you know, uh, blame others kind of uh, uh, gestalt in our society. I think it's very unfortunate. I think we also on the, I, I have no idea what your politics are, Steve. I consider myself a progressive. I think progressives have to take back masculinity. And that is we have to define what masculinity means and show a vision. Why are all the dudes these conservatives? <laughs> so, I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm a profane and vulgar person. And on the left, they immediately complain, conflate. I've cursed several times on this show. I talk about sex very openly and very crudely. That doesn't mean I'm not, that doesn't mean I'm not a feminist. Doesn't mean I don't have progressive values. So I think the left needs to take back profanity and vulgarity. And I think we need to take back masculinity. I, I see masculinity as a man-made societal construct, but to, we need to identify it and then ask young men to foot to those skills. And I see it as very basic in a very basic way, acquiring the skills and strengths so you can advocate for and protect others, whether it's physical strength, mental strength, financial strength, kindness, intelligence. And I think saying, okay, it's great to be a man, express your masculinity. And by the way, masculinity isn't just the domain of people who are born men. Women can demonstrate masculine features just as men can dem demonstrate feminine features. But I think the left or progressives need to take back this notion of masculinity. And we've sort of We've sort of emasculated on the left men because to be pro-man, to even acknowledge masculinity, is somehow to be anti-female on the left. And that's not true at all. You know who wants more men? Women. Or that's what I find. So I think that uh, key to restoring balance, if you will, and not having our party split across gender lines and pull this generation of failing young men out of this hole is to redefine masculinity as something more evolved, more thoughtful, that involves intelligence, that involves kindness, that involves strength, but also on the left to say, it's okay to be a man. We can acknowledge our differences. It's okay to be aggressive. You know, when, when Russians pour over the border in Ukraine, you want some of that big dick energy. <laughs> you know, it, 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 there's some features of, of distinct to uh, 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 a man that is really important in our society and should be celebrated. And all of it has been, in my opinion, not all of it, a lot of it has been on the left conflated with toxicity. And there's some of those attributes that can lead to terrible behavior, but most of it is a good thing in our society. Most of it is needed. Enter Andrew Tate. He is basically making people nostalgic for Peterson in the same way that people got nostalgic for George W. Bush as soon as Trump got elected. He's tapping into a similar well, but I think in a much more invidious way. What they're seeing is someone is like, here I am and here I stand. This is what I believe and I don't care what anyone else thinks. And I was actually watching an Andrew Tate video with a young woman and a couple of young men. And, she's, and she said, he seems very confident. Mm. Uh, 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 and that's, uh, yes, he does to a degree that's troubling in many cases. And I think we, it's incumbent to understand his appeal yeah. and not to dismiss everyone who's attracted to him as just straightforwardly misogynist, but instead try and say, what is it here? What's missing here? Because there's something missing in our society that is allowing people like Andrew Tate to get 12 billion views. And so to that extent, I think Andrew Tate is our fault. Yeah. I don't blame Tate. I blame us. For Nula Mullen, it started when she was 10 years old, posting videos like this one to social media. Two years later, she joined Instagram. The next year, TikTok. 
It's just an addiction. Once you know what it feels like to get likes and validation, you just crave it all of the time. Back in the sixth grade, I got some bad grades. I was in love with my And over the next five years, she gained thousands of followers documenting her teenage life. It's like I knew that I was hurting myself and I knew what I was doing wasn't beneficial to me, but I just needed that validation so badly that I was willing to do anything to get it. Mullen, who is now 18, says that became especially true at the start of the pandemic. Then, a star field hockey player at her high school in Westchester County, New York, Mullen says she started doing popular workout challenges on TikTok and Instagram while stuck at home. I think that's really how I fell down the rabbit hole because I was noticing after these two weeks the changes and I was getting comments on TikTok being like, oh, you look so good, whatever. And I thought to myself, oh, something must be working, you know. Almost immediately, Mullen says her Instagram and TikTok feeds were flooded with body image content. From workout challenges to diet tips to testimonials on how to lose and keep off weight. Before long, she had developed a new routine, one that continued even after she went back to school. I'd go to field hockey practice, come home, I would run for an hour, I would do weight training, I would do ab routines, I would do HIIT workout videos, you know, basically until I was two weeks to do anything else. I was training for hours and hours and throughout the day I wasn't eating then. I had no idea who she was. It was like another person um, took over her body. Nula's mom, Elizabeth Mullen, says she and her daughter have always been close. But as Nula became obsessed with working out, she struggled to understand what was fueling this new behavior. You know, she would talk about a feeling of not being good enough, uh, being lonely at times, um, not being seen. I was like, well, what's happening here? And then I started to really take a look into what she was seeing on the phone. What was it like for you as a parent to first try to understand what was happening and then, by extension, try to get control over what was happening? At its worst, it's like dropping your boat's anchor in the middle of a hurricane at sea. Like, it is just impossible because I'd get on and be like, well, what's this about? Or why do you have to photograph yourself like that? And so what ended up happening is, you know, she's a smart girl. She would just create different accounts. By the fall of 2021, Nula's life began to spiral. Diagnosed with anorexia, she began having chest pains and was hospitalized after her heart rate became dangerously low. For me, I couldn't get skinny enough. I couldn't receive enough likes. I was just still in that mindset that I needed to be skinny in order for these people online to like me. What about peers and friends? Did you have conversations with them later about what had happened? Um, Not till after my second hospitalization. I found that even like during the eating disorder, I was, I didn't want to tell anyone, not even in the sense that I was embarrassed, but it was competitive for me. I thought, oh, if I shared that I had anorexia with one of my friends, they might get a notion and they might become skinnier than me and they might get more likes. So I wouldn't tell anyone what was going on. In December, the Mullins filed a lawsuit against both TikTok and Meta, the parent company that owns Instagram and Facebook, alleging that the addictive qualities of these platforms are causing and contributing to the burgeoning mental health crisis for teenagers. It's one of hundreds of lawsuits against social media companies that come as the industry faces increasing calls for reform, including from President Joe Biden earlier this month. We must finally hold social media companies accountable for experimenting or doing running children for profit. Social media companies have long been shielded from lawsuits because of what's known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, 
1996 law that protected the companies from what users post on their platforms. But the Supreme Court will consider challenges to the law later this month. Right now, platforms have no responsibility for how their businesses cause harm. Imrad Ahmed is the CEO of the nonprofit Center for Countering Digital Hate. In their recent report, titled Deadly by Design, the organization calculated that videos related to eating disorders on TikTok had been viewed more than 13 billion times. The organization also set up eight TikTok accounts, all posing as 13-year-olds, the minimum age allowed by law to be on social media. After these accounts briefly viewed or liked body image and mental health content, more was quickly fed to them. Within two and a half minutes of opening an account as a 13-year-old girl, it's sending itself harm content. Within eight minutes, eating disorder content. Every 39 seconds, the first half hour, they were receiving some sort of harmful content. Both TikTok and Meta declined the NewsHour's request for an interview. But a TikTok spokesperson told us that last year, the company proactively removed more than 80% of all eating disorder content within 24 hours and more than 70% of those videos received no views. While Meta told the NewsHour, we want teens to be safe online, and we don't allow content that promotes suicide, self-harm, or eating disorders. The statement goes on to say, of the content we remove, we identify 99% of it before it's reported to us. If you get users when they're young, there's a good chance they'll stay on for life. Everybody's competing for the teenagers. Greg and I wrote an article in The Atlantic in 2015, which the editors titled The Coddling of the American Mind. We, we didn't like the title, but it sure stuck. So that got us into studying what is happening to college students. They have rising rates of depression. Why is that? And so that's what that article was about. We thought that there are ways of thinking that are very harmful, that are self-destructive, that encourage people to think of themselves as victims. And we speculated, we had one line in the article about how college students who arrived in campus around 2014 were also the first generation to really get on Facebook and other social media around the time it came out, around, you know, 2007, 2008, they were in middle school. So we speculate, well, maybe, you know, maybe that had something to do with it, but there was no evidence back then. Well, in the couple years after that, what Greg and I learned is that one of the biggest things that happened on college campuses is that Gen Z arrived around 2014. So the millennials are not really more depressed than previous generations, but suddenly kids born in 1996 and later are very different from the millennials. Jean Twenge, who's been studying generations for a while now, she comes out with a big article in The Atlantic called Our Smartphones Ruining a Generation, and she reviews the evidence that, well, actually, yes, the smartphone generation growing up on smartphones does seem to impact mental health. That was 2017, and she has a book called iGen. When Greg and I read that, that was a big missing piece of the puzzle. So for me, this has been a really a, a gigantic puzzle with enormous social ramifications. Twenge's research at least suggested that, well, a piece of the puzzle is social media. And another piece is the overprotection, which is what Greg and I had been focusing on. So that's what got me started. 
I think it's important for people to know in your book, you are not coming from a background of we, we really have to care about kids. They're all so vulnerable. We have to make sure we're coddling them. The point of your book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is that we've been overprotective. So just to name for people, if we, as we start to veer into the territory of how do we deal with and, and protect or care about the mental health of especially teenage girls, this isn't starting from a perspective of we need to be so delicate. They're so delicate. We have to be so careful with them. Do you want to talk just a little bit more about that side? Because I think it qualifies that you're concern would be so opposite when it comes to social media and, and teen girls. Yeah, well, that's right. Because the core psychological idea, the most important psychological idea in the book is anti-fragility. It's such a useful idea. And everybody knows it. We all understand that the immune system is an open system that requires exposure to pathogens in order to develop immunity. That's how a vaccine works. And most people understand that if you raise your kid in a bubble because you're afraid of bacteria, and so you never let the kid be exposed to bacteria, that doesn't help. We need to be exposed to bacteria. And psychologically speaking, if you protect your kid and you say, I'll make sure you never get lost, I'll make sure that you're never teased or threatened by other kids. Well, you're not helping the kid. Obviously, a bullying that goes on for days is terrible, but kids have to have normal conflicts to get lost, to get scared sometimes, and then you find your way back. We need this. Kids must have a lot of negative experiences to develop normal strength and toughness. So I start from that position that we do need to let kids out. We need to let them have all kinds of negative experiences and not protect them. And then they learn to protect themselves. So there's going to be an interesting twist when we get to the question of, well, shouldn't they be out on social media being publicly shamed? Wouldn't that be good for them? But we're getting ahead of the story. So, okay, let's put right on the table here. What do we mean by social media and why is it sometimes bad? And let's be clear. Obviously, social media does enormous good. Facebook in particular is very good at getting groups to organize and do things. I would never want to do a blanket thing like, oh, social media is terrible or, you know, the internet is terrible. So let's be clear about what are the mechanisms here that make a little part of what we do online harmful both to democracy and to teen mental health. And writing this article in The Atlantic last fall with Tobias Rose Stockwell, who knows a lot more about social media than I do, what I learned, what I really began to see in the evolution here, is that when social media began, Friendster and MySpace and the Facebook, they were just like glorified address books, like, look, here's me. Look at all the, the friends I have. Look at all the bands I like. So that's not toxic. That's just public display. And you know, you're sure you're boasting about your popularity. But that's not bad for democracy. And that doesn't drive people to suicide. The big change, the period where everything got transformed is 2009 to 2012 or 13. And in 2009, Facebook adds the like button, and then uh, Twitter copies it. Twitter adds the retweet button, and then Facebook copies it. And now the platforms have enormous amounts of information about what people will click on, what engages them. So now they algorithmicize their news feeds. And so suddenly now everything's custom tailored to you to maximize the degree which you will stay on, you will click, you will forward something. And the net effect is that by, first of all, for the teen mental health, in 2009, most teens were not on these platforms every day. And by 2011, they were. So that's the two-year period where teen social life goes from mostly face-to-face. -face. Of course, they're texting a lot. They're, you know, it's not that they're you know, like the old days. But these platforms where you create content and other people rate your content and other people like it or ignore it, and then you look and you're watching and you're watching the meter go up or not, and you're feeling shame because your post didn't get many likes... This is when everything changes, 2009 to 2011. 
That's the transformative period for teen mental health and also for democracy, because by 2011, 2012, we've now created what Tobias calls the outrage machine. We have the ability now for anything to happen, and anybody, an individual or an organization, can distort it, repackage it in a way that triggers outrage, retweet it, and then it can go viral very quickly. And now we're in a state of perpetual outrage. This is not about forming a group of dog walkers in a neighborhood. This is about a way of engaging that maximizes public performance, which means we all become brand managers trying to manipulate other people in a way linked together so that things can move very, very quickly, and we can all be immersed in outrage forever and ever. The world changed between 2009 and 2011, 12, and then mainstream media now has no choice but to hook into this. So this is the key period that people need to focus on. And it's especially prevalent among kids, the lack of socialization, and then this kind of hyper-socialization that takes place on their phone, which is really brutal and has huge externalities, is, I think, one of the biggest uh, causes for the massive uptick in depression among young people. So, again, I like to coach younger people. I'm like, put yourself in a position where you have to be around other people every day, building something in the agency of something else whether it's a job, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's church, whether it's a sports league, be in the agency of others building something bigger than all of you. And it's a great way to make friends, mentors. It's a great way to learn how to read the room. I joined a fraternity when I went to UCLA when I was 17. And people make a cartoon of fraternity. Like we're all these terrible people. It was the best thing I could have done. I had no male role models until the age of 17. My dad wasn't around. I didn't have many friends. So being in a place that shrunk a 30,000-person campus down to a smaller thing, I wouldn't have graduated. And it was hard for me. These, my quote-unquote fraternity brothers gave me a hard time, but it was really good for me. You know, you, 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 you get in better shape. I, I, remember, I remember my roommates telling me to stop smoking so much pot and go to class more. I mean, you have people watching you 24 by 7. Uh, I needed that socialization. Uh, so I think one of the worst things that can happen to a young adult is for them to be isolated, and we're increasingly isolated. Are you optimistic about that that changing? Because the direction of travel is in one di- is in one direction, and then when you hear things about metaverses, yeah, and- I'm not. I think we have this nihilistic. I think technology is nihilistic. I think the most successful person in the world, at least monetarily, wants to figure out a way to inhabit another planet rather than focus his genius and his resources on making this planet more habitable. And I find that nihilistic. And uh, people, I, I just find it strange that the most talented, wealthiest people in the world want to get us off the planet. So, and then you think about social media, just the trends among young people. There's an uptick in travel, but that's pent up demand by uh, a class of people who have the money to travel. Our socialization appears to have taken a dramatic step change, structural step change down. And I even see to my kids. They are thinking about getting home to their phones and they're social on their phones, but it's not a replacement for, for person-to-person contact. Um, you know, there's some good things to it. Uh, teen drunk driving accidents are down. Teen pregnancy is way down. But the number of kids socializing is way off. I find it, I think it's a, I think it's a 
terrible thing. And I don't see, there'll be some uptick because COVID's over, but it feels like there's been a structural step change down because people now want the dopa they get trading on Robinhood, watching porn, watching Netflix, uh, getting some sort of socialization or need for affirmation by the number of likes they get on Twitter, rather than leaving their house to get that same type of dopa hit. The number of people playing in organized sports is way down. So I'm not, I think it's I think it's a real problem, and I don't see it unless there's ex- unless there's recognition of it and external investment, whether it's youth clubs, whether it's after school programs, whether it's some sort of conscription or national service, which I'm a big fan of. I don't see structured means for people, young people, to serve in the agency of something bigger than themselves. Do you think there's a decline? decline in grit amongst young people that this gen z generation in the in the western world when you think about your kids and the and the grit they'll have you talked about how important grit is to to mm-hmm. achieving economic viability um i was talking to simon Sinek about this a couple of weeks ago on this podcast about whether gen z are less res- resilient and hardworking than generations that have come before them because of the influences i remember i opened up tiktok the other day and it's like it's showing, I don't know whether this was just the TikTok I saw. I remember one going viral mm-hmm. on Twitter a couple of weeks ago from San Francisco, showing the day in the, the life of um, a Gen Z working in mm-hmm. in tech. And it's like, yeah, wake yeah. up, go get the frappa chaka latte, whatever. <laughs> take the dog for a walk. Take the dog yeah. for a pottery class. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's I like love that. five minutes on the laptop, pottery classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yoga. Um, <laughs> I worry about this a lot. With my kids, because generally speaking, what happens is the children of, I, I would say if I had what my kids have, I wouldn't have what I have because I wasn't that motivated. If I'd grown up in the household, I'm growing, my kids are growing up now. The only two things I know I would have had in my life as a young man are a Range Rover and a cocaine habit. I just wasn't, an absence of money really motivated me. And my kids don't have that. My kids have access to everything they need. And so trying to figure out a way to instill grit in your kids, whether it's chores or some level of discipline, I, it's my, I think it's my biggest challenge as a, or our biggest challenge as parents. Uh, um, but in terms of the, I work with, and granted it's selection bias, I work, the kids I work with, I can't get over how extraordinarily talented they are. Um, so the meme of quiet quitting And again, it may be proximity bias because of the kids I draw or I I know in my firm, but I find that every year, and I teach between three and 500 kids a year at NYU, every year I find that the kids, the young adults, are more talented and harder working and more socially conscious. Sure, they're a little expectant. Some of it, I roll my eyes. You know, occasionally I'll say someone, say, you know, I I need to leave and go to Pilates class. And I kind of laugh, like, I can't even imagine saying that to my boss. Uh, when I started out. But in general, I find they're just remarkable. Um, And again, it might be because of the kids I've been able to attract, but I don't buy this notion that they're somehow entitled. I I haven't seen that. Amy Orbin has been, I think, really good on this. She's had a lot of articles saying, stop talking about screen time. And she actually has convinced me about that and my debate with her. Now, screen time still matters overall in the sense that parents need to decide and kids need to decide, do you want to spend all day on your screen? But 
If we're talking about does screen time cause depression or anxiety, no, it looks like it doesn't. So if we just focus on depression and anxiety, I think we are honing in on the idea that screen time is not the problem, but social media is. We're not accusing all screen time activities. We're actually now focusing on, you know, we think this is the guy that did it. So it's not resolved, but I think we've got the guy. So we've gone through the detective story with these statistical models, but the content that's beneath the word social media is different for each application and on a given day and in a given year. Are we talking about Facebook? Are we talking about Instagram? Are we talking about TikTok? Are we talking about Facebook in 2009, third quarter, where they changed the algorithm and all the weights are different? I think what's really hard about this is how do we kind of move the debate and the conversation to kind of a common sense orientation of, okay, if I'm a 12-year-old kid, I'm forming my identity from a teenage girl, and I'm especially attuned to my physical appearance, and I post a photo and I don't use a filter on it, and I see that the photo that doesn't have as much of my skin showing doesn't get as many likes as when I used to have a lot more skin showing, I actually will delete that. This is a known behavior. The teenage girl will delete the photo that doesn't get very many likes because she's worried about how she'll be perceived given all of her other ones have this high social rating. And so the kind of basic mechanics, it's almost like saying, well, with climate change, we could do a million statistical models, or we can just look at the mechanism that says this tends to amplify that. And I'm curious, John, when you think about that, because there's so many nuances of what we could say here. I mean, obviously, people will say things like, but look at all the creative things that people are doing on TikTok. Look at all these amazing videos. But we can look at key mechanics and at content beneath the word social and media that I think uh, we can clearly say are harmful. What do you think about that? Yeah. So Nir Ayal, he wrote the book Hooked. He and I actually became friends during a, a debate over whether whether social media is harmful. We have daughters the same age who, be, who became friends. But Nir has this thing he calls the regret test. And if you ask consumers, do they regret their involvement with the product? And they say yes. Well, that's pretty damning. You know, the whole moral basis of capitalism is that it creates wealth and and allocates resources in ways that satisfy people's wants. And if it's doing things that people don't want, or, you know, catching them up in behaviors that they wish they didn't have, well, that's that's pretty damning. There was a study done on users of Moment, and it was, one was the percentage of users who are happy with the amount of time they spend on each app. And at the top, the most happy in order is FaceTime, mail, phone, messages, and messenger. In other words, To the degree that technology helps us talk to our friends, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, Nobody wishes they spent less time on FaceTime with their friends. But at the other end, the bottom was Instagram at 37%. Only 37% of Instagram users are happy with the amount of time they spend. Tinder is 40%. Facebook is 41%. Reddit is 43%. So I think this is very, very important. I think this really shows there's something wrong here. And now let's dig deeper. Okay, so what is it about those programs that not just people regret using, but what is it that actually is the mechanism of harm? And here, you know, look, if people over 18 choose to do something, if they choose to gamble or try heroin, that's their choice. I don't want to get involved in that. But the internet, this is pointed out to me by Bieben Kildren, a member of parliament who studies this in the UK, the internet was not built with children in mind, yet a third of the people on the internet are children under 18. If we really take this seriously and say, well, what kind of internet would we have built if we knew that a third of the people on it would be children? Would it look like this? For adults, you know, I don't want to tell adults they can't do something because I think it's harmful. But, you know, for children, it's different. And then the other thing that's crucial here is that social media is not an individual choice. I mean, in in one level, it is, of course, by the children and the parents. But when my son started sixth grade, 
and everybody else was on Instagram at his middle school in New York City. And I said, no, you, you can't go on. Well, then he was excluded. And presumably, none of the other parents wanted their kids on, but we all let our kids on, most people, because the other kids are on it. So the social media companies either wittingly or unwittingly have created a trap. Everybody lies about their age. They can get on whenever they want. To actually, though, to answer your question, you did say, well, aren't, aren't all the, are there all these good things? Uh, yeah, of course there are. And if it wasn't for the mental health, suicide, and self-harm, I would say, hmm, let's try to add up the pluses and minuses. We're talking between 50 and 150% increases in suicide for teenagers in, in the United States. So given that, I think we can say, you can be as creative as you want on Instagram and TikTok, but maybe wait until at least the legal age of 13, and maybe even longer. We've just heard clips today, starting with Axios speaking with Senator Josh Hawley. Big Think featured Richard Reeves discussing the modern gender divide. The Man Enough podcast spoke with Liz Plank and Richard Reeves about the importance of getting language right to make progress. The PBS NewsHour reported on the high levels of sadness and violence being experienced by teen girls. The Diary of a CEO talked with Scott Galloway about the growing misogyny and the need to redefine masculinity. Keep Talking pointed to Andrew Tate as a symptom of society rather than the cause of our problems. The PBS NewsHour dove into the personal story of a young woman's struggle with social media addiction. Your Undivided Attention looked at the impact of social media on depression, anxiety, and suicide rates. The Diary of a CEO continued their talk with Scott Galloway about the need for healthy socialization and connection to a collective purpose. And Your Undivided Attention looked at the self-reported regret people have after using social media. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Your Undivided Attention focusing in on TikTok and the differences in how it's used in China versus the rest of the world. And we heard more from Richard Reeves' Big Think presentation on the gender divide. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. And the first message is a follow-up from the previous episode in which Boris from Brussels gently criticized the recent episode about J.K. Rowling for focusing on on the wrong target, to which I responded that I made the episode I wanted to make because I thought the topic was valuable. Hi Jay, this is Boris. Thanks for airing my reply and for your elaborate response on today's episode. I'm really honored to be mentioned. You're right, many of the things we take for granted in Belgium are still a struggle in the US and in many other parts of the world and are hard to comprehend when you're not living it yourself. I certainly didn't want to minimize the threats LGBTQ communities are facing. My point was more that we are on the right side of history. Let's keep the moral high ground and condemn threats to people like JK Rowling. 
whose views are considered moderate by most and not existentially threatening on their own, and instead engage them with informed arguments. These threats only create more divisions and indeed provide fuel for reactionaries of which there are plenty. Let's reserve our ire for real fascists. In Belgium we certainly have our fascist incubators and the threat is still lurking in fringe student clubs, anti-establishment movements and right-wing groupings. However, lately most of my mental bandwidth has been directed at an aggressive and openly fascist, ultra-nationalist, authoritarian and revisionist regime, Russia, which has started a destructive war and has the audacity to call its enemies Nazis. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons why I don't like it if these terms are used lightly. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I'm calling about a future show I believe you will produce on the Tennessee Three, and specifically the expulsion of the two Justins. I'm calling as a black man, to be honest and frank with you. As a black man who wants to talk briefly to a white audience that I believe is experiencing some of the same thoughts that I have heard repeated by other white commentators over the last few days. One of those thoughts centers around how articulate these brothers are and what beautiful leaders they are going to be for the black community. Some of those comments centers around why has there not been and why are there not more black men like this to obviously say nothing about our black sisters who have been leading our community through some very difficult times in the last 30 years. I want your audience to understand a point that was made by or within, should I say, the podcast known as the Leftist Mafia. You can find it on Rational National's YouTube page. It's a point that many white folks may have thought about, but they haven't wanted to give voice to. And that is the reason we don't see a lot of black men that sound like these brothers rise to the level of not only good leadership, but great leadership is because they are targeted and isolated and minimized like these brothers are being targeted, isolated and minimized right now. And if they don't shush when they are targeted, especially in the South, the agitation on the part of those opposing them moves quickly from isolation to elimination. We are seeing a microcosmic aspect of what the black community has been dealing with for the last 60 years. We raise up leaders and we build institutions to not only support those leaders, but to support their work within the community so it can be regenerated throughout the generations. And reactionary forces, 
sometimes governmental, sometimes extra governmental, sometimes non-governmental, come in to remove the leader, destroy the institution. I need the people listening to your podcast to understand this point. What you are seeing here is the beginning stages of marking these brothers. So that in Tennessee and elsewhere throughout the country, reactionary forces will always be on the lookout for them. Expulsion from a house chamber is the beginning step. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks, as always, to V for his insights, and to Boris, I am fascinated by this line of argument, primarily because I don't really feel like Boris and I disagree all that much. Boris's criticism, which he is now clarifying, is that we should take the moral high ground and condemn threats to people like Rowling, highlight that she's a moderate in her thinking, which makes her not existentially threatening on her own, and that we should focus our energy on the real fascists, particularly people like the government of Russia, who launched an invasion based partly on the dubious argument that their Ukrainian enemies were themselves Nazis because calling someone a Nazi is a great way to shape public opinion and gain support for an attack against that group of people. Now, for context, we're discussing an episode in which the main point I wanted to make wasn't really about J.K. Rowling. It was about how multiple groups of people have ended up using almost identical arguments against each other to make diametrically opposing points. And the primary example of this is how J.K. Rowling and other anti-trans feminists are, though not fascists themselves, more closely aligned ideologically with fascists than trans rights advocates are, for obvious reasons. And yet, one of their primary arguments is that the trans rights community itself is authoritarian, illiberal, and, in Rowling's words, akin to the Death Eaters of the Harry Potter universe, which is as close as one can get to calling someone a Nazi without calling them a Nazi. So I found that interesting and made a show about it in which I feel like I did exactly what someone like Boris would want me to do. I said that Rowling was a moderate in her anti-trans views. And now I want to make sure to be fair and say that Rowling is definitely a moderate within the camp of anti-trans feminists. There are people far worse than her, she at least believes that trans people are real and support for them is necessary. I highlighted a speaker who condemns attacks on Rowling. Have people been abusive, disproportionate, out of line in reacting against J.K. Rowling? Of course. Do I endorse people saying like violent or abusive, cruel things? No. I've been the target of a lot of that myself, but I also kind of understand what people are mad about. And I created a detailed explanation of why it's so dangerous to go around baselessly calling people Nazis because of how it shapes public opinion against that group and opens them up for attack.
So where do Boris and I really disagree here? But to be clear, just in case you got lost in the analogy at all, J.K. Rowling is not akin to the government of Russia in this scenario. She would be more similar to a very popular influencer who doesn't really support the invasion of Ukraine, but still agrees with Putin that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis. And in the war of public opinion, where lives are on the line, that seems like a perfectly valid target to focus on. But even then, if she were just an influential person saying bad things about trans people, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that warranted a full episode discussion. What made it interesting enough to do that was the fundamental disconnect or misunderstanding or mirror image logic at play that led Rowling to accuse the trans community of being exactly that which threatens them the most, while completely exonerating her own side which is actually closer to the fascists on the issue, to the point where neo-Nazis have started showing up to support anti-trans feminist marches. That level of misunderstanding is a fascinating phenomenon, and it's becoming more and more a part of everyday political debate. So it's really worth understanding. And frankly, this conversation we're having right now seems to be a vague approximation of that same problem. I mean, we're not on polar opposites of our argument here, but... There's a lot of confusion and, uh, and suggestions of how things should have gone coming from Boris, which seems to me to describe exactly what I already did. So there's some fundamental misunderstanding, disconnection, mirror image logic, who knows what going on here. Because again, I don't really see how we're disagreeing at all, other than maybe that I tried to make an argument for why what J.K. Rowling is doing is extremely dangerous, and I didn't do a good enough job of making that argument because it doesn't seem to have fully landed with Boris. Anyway, I try. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can send us a text message through SMS or on WhatsApp or the Signal Messaging app, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmaster, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can join the discussion on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com